Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Block. Yeah, welcome back. It is conference weekend, so you know, get hype. Yeah. Derek, how are you doing this week? Great. Yeah, things are good. Very things good, man. Good. You excited for conference? I am, yes. One of the things that I'm going to focus on going into conference is the capacity for personal revelation. Because this might this might be a humble brag, but since I've focused so much on the scriptures and I get so much knowledge out of them, I very rarely have to rely on personal revelation. So I don't know if that's <laughs> <laughs> like a, that's a, all like right. A, um, but what I want to do is actually strengthen that part because I think we had a sister. Was it Julie Beck who said that the most important skill that we can acquire in this life is the ability to qualify for receive and act on personal revelation and if she's like that's the most important thing we can learn in this life that's actually more important than the scriptures yeah i'm like wow that's an interesting thing if that's the most important skill then that's something we should really cultivate definitely and it makes sense because you know even the scriptures we have to rely on personal revelation to receive a witness of the truths yeah. that we learn mm-hmm. in there because, you know, Lord knows all of us read the scriptures in a different way or we gain different things from the scriptures and it's the Holy Spirit that helps us, one, uh, catch those things yeah. and two, to understand them in their proper context, uh, assuming that we're in tune with yeah. the Spirit. So uh, I, I would definitely agree with that sentiment. Um, any predictions? Like we've had a week to think of it about it. Do you uh, have any other predictions for what might uh, what might be announced at conference? No, no, <laughs> I don't. I, I'll, I'll tell you, man. After these announcements this week, um, I'm kind of, I'm I'm definitely caught off guard. I'm definitely taking a little aback. I don't know what's coming next, man. Like I'm assuming we're gonna get an announcement for more temples, but just anything could happen, man. Anything yeah. could happen, and I'm excited to see what is going to happen next and that's going to segue well into the new section of our show yeah um let what do you want to talk about first you want to talk about these changes or do you want to talk about uh you want to start with lgbt history yeah let's talk about that i think lgbt history month is a contrast sort of to pride month because pride month is about celebrating our existence and our survival and our thriving but then LGBT History Month is a a way of looking back at where where our ancestors came from, you know, our queer and trans ancestors and what they've done and what they've done to change the world. And it gives us an opportunity to look at and center um, women and queer and trans people of color because for so long we've got this distorted impression that LGBT history is like gay white men, Mm -hmm. right? But there's so many more things going on there. And I think being able to look and see all these things and how they lead into where we are now and and being grateful for for where we came from and, and celebrating our history is a great way. And this dovetails with our view of family history, right? For for those of us who are queer, we may have some distance and disconnection with our our genetic family but we have a family right and i think when i study our queer and trans ancestors that's actually my family history it's my chosen family so that's all i want to say about lgbt history month make sure we keep moving forward with the work 
and let our history be our grounding for where we go in the future. All right, sweet. And uh, why don't we talk about as well um, some of these changes that have already happened this week that were announced at the uh, leadership session of General Conference. Um, One of them was the, or I guess this was actually announced last Sunday, or at least in that broadcast that we were asked to watch. One is the uh, change, changes in the youth program. And we wanted to talk a little bit about its effects on uh, member retention, the implication for queer and trans youths. A couple things I wanted to acknowledge was the new conference that they're going to be doing. Rather than EFY, they're going to be doing FSY, Mm -hmm. the for the strength of youth conference and it seems that'll have more or less the same purpose as the fy just actually having official church branding now because yeah. the fy while it was i don't know exactly how you would describe it it was organized by members of the church but it wasn't exactly a church sanctioned event okay. or a church sponsored event and uh, this will be had every other year from what i can tell and it'll be made i don't they said it's going to be more accessible, and I don't know exactly what that meant, if it's going to be more affordable or if it's going to be more, like, I, I don't know what they meant, but apparently this is going to have a greater appeal or some kind of greater accessibility towards all youths, and that's that's going to be great. It's still going to be a week full of spiritual activity and also fun activities. I don't know if they're going to keep all elements of EFY, but that looks to be a very positive thing. And I also noticed that there was a big change in the personal development. Like they're getting rid of For the Strength of Youth. They're getting rid of Duty to God and the Faith of God Awards. They're getting rid of personal progress in favor of a more, uh, I don't know, something that's more directed by personal revelation, it seems. It seems they want this to be made on more of an individual basis where it's going to be the children deciding for themselves what personal progress is going to look for each one of them, where they'll be more or less dictating the terms of their own personal progress rather than having the church uh, dictated. I think I understood that correctly. Yeah, I think that gets back to this emphasis on home-centered and church-supported, where you can have individual adaptation for the needs of particular families or children. Mm -hmm. There can be a local option to do whatever the needs of the community I, I like this because it's getting away from this cookie cutter idea, which is not at all in our doctrine. It's in our right. culture. Yeah. But the idea that we've got this factory that churns out young men and young women into this mold. I'm like, that's, that does not make Jesus smile, <laughs> you know? And I think that gets back to, um, I'm, I'm curious about the implications on queer and trans youth because that allows people, people in certain areas to give a local option to figure out well what do these kids actually need and what are the parts of the program that we used to have that could be damaging for them yeah that we don't have to do right and i think that that could in the hands of capable and uh proficient adults who who know what's going on yeah that can be powerful for queer and trans youth and i think that blair ostler said something really profound and i never put this together this way before but i she said something like the best thing we can do for queer and trans youth in the church is to take care of our queer and trans adults Mm. because no nothing we say to our our youth like how much we love them and how much room there is for them none of that will matter it will all ring hollow and hypocritical if there are no queer adults around because what will happen is they'll think well there's no room for me right no matter what they say if there's no adults, if there's no models, if there's not even one person in the stake 
who's, who they can point to say, look, there's a place for you, and this is what it looks like. If they can't do that, then nothing we do for queer and trans youth will matter. It will all ring hollow. It will all be pointless. No, mm. Even if it's the best programming in the world, if there's no room for queer adults, you've lost it. Mm. And I think that's something important we can do is, is focus on um, our queer and trans adults and keeping us safe, uh, protected, and uh, not just that, but also nourished and nurtured and cherished and appreciated. Um and put in positions of leadership. Yeah, man. Yeah. And the other thing is, m my question about retention, because obviously we've got some smart people in Salt Lake working the numbers on this, and we've got a, a number of things going on, because when you look at the demographics of, West, uh, of the West, like North America and Europe, we've got a problem. Our convert numbers are way down from what they used to be in the in the in the major uh, rush of the 70s and 80s and 90s, you know, when we had lots and lots of converts. The other thing is our departures are increasing too. We have a lot of people disconnecting and disaffiliating, whether or not they, they take their names off the membership of the church. There's a lot of people. And if you look at Jana Reese's next Mormon survey, if the trends continue, half of our primary kids will be gone and have left the church when they're adults, if the trends continue. I mean, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. Have we Think about all the work we do to make one convert, you know, and then half of our kids are leaving out the back door when they, when they become adults, and we really need to figure out what's going on. We need to prepare our kids for lifelong discipleship. We need to find a community that makes meaning for them and supports them. We need to get ahead of some of the faith crisis challenges that people will encounter in these uh, days of open access to information. And I think this youth program really, if they do it right, can, can help train kids to be prepared for those things and retain them as lifelong adult members of the church who are integrated and satisfied and happy and functional mm. what do you think i don't have a terribly strong opinion on uh, this new youth program obviously i'm not strongly affected by it at this point in my life i did really like the piece like the pieces that stood out to me particularly this part about personal development being more driven by the child and more driven by their personal revelation i really liked how that encouraged uh, kids to be more involved in their own spiritual growth and their own personal growth in general but um you know, the thing I think about a lot when it comes to making sure that our kids are being able to grow up in a church that seems to value them and also seems to value other people is that a big key of making sure they are retained is going to be making sure that they know they're valued, making sure that their voices are heard, which is why we seem to be giving yeah. more autonomy uh, to the children, and also making sure that the society they're growing up in, that they're being equipped by the church to not only quote-unquote deal with it but also to flourish in it and that's not really going to happen if we aren't able to for lack of a better phrase justify certain policies and certain practices we have as a church and as a culture mm -hmm. with regard to the outside world i think a lot about you know you brought up jenna reese's uh, survey i've been uh, i'm still reading her book 
uh, the next Mormons and a big part of something that's changing with our particular millennial generation of Mormons is that you see a lot of us leaving the church because of how the church is responding to social trends in the rest of the world around us. You see a lot of people leaving over, um, you know, social issues, which is understandable. I mean, me and you have had this conversation about how we feel about that, but I do want to make sure that the church is equipping uh, our youth to not only be able to deal with the changes in society around us, but also to flourish in them in a way that allows them to hold mm-hmm. on to their identities, mm-hmm. hold on to their faith without necessarily without necessarily otherizing people that are not like them or don't believe as they do. And I think creating that creating that environment is going to make them better missionaries. It's going to make them better members. It is going to put them in a better position to minister to fellow members, and it's going to put them in a better position to partake of the gospel in the way that Christ would. If we are raising more Christ-like kids, then we are going to be raising more Christ-like missionaries. We are going to be bringing more people in. I want us to get to a point as a church where people see us and they in essence say, I want a piece of that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I feel like if we had more Christ-like people in the church, then I honestly feel like there would be a dramatic demographic shift in what our church looked like. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like, and you know, the general temperaments of the church as well. But I don't think that can happen unless we give children more autonomy to exp- to explore what it is right. to be a spiritual person, what it is to be a religious person, and to have us not necessarily define that for them. I feel like for me personally, part of my spiritual growth has been being allowed to have that. You know, I didn't necessarily grow up with family home evening in my house. But I did grow up in a house that taught me that there was value in going to church, yeah. that taught me there was value in studying scriptures. It didn't teach me that I had to conform. It didn't teach me that I had to think or believe a certain way. It just told me, this is how you find value in church. This is how you find value in the things that the church teaches. My mom is not a conformist at all when it came to church culture. She stood out immediately wherever she went. And I took my cues from her. She was sti- She's still one of the kindest toughest, most loving and Christ-like people that I know, but she never conformed. And I kind of model my practice of my religion after her in that I take what has value to me as a person, but I don't let that change who I am. And I don't let that make me feel bad about who I am and what I believe in. Like, and I think I'm a better member of the church because of it. So I, I see this change in programming for the youth as a way of trying to replicate that for the kids. And I think that is a very good thing. Yeah. I'm, I really think that we're entering a what I'm going to call a Vatican II moment in our church history. Okay. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So here's what happened in the Roman Catholic Church. Just real quick. Uh, They had a major uh, church council in the 1560s, the Council of Trent, where they basically dealt with the rise of Protestantism and, and, and solidified a number of their positions. And, but what's interesting is that they hadn't made any changes since then, with the exception of the Vatican I Council in the um, 1870s. And the Vatican I only dealt with a few issues, and then they had to cancel the council. So by the time you get to the 1960s, the Roman Catholic Church was way, way behind on so many things. And there were so many changes that needed to be made 
not in terms and they didn't Vatican II didn't change really any doctrinal things but it changed a lot of people's experience of the church um, they restructured the way uh, they did the liturgy they allowed it to be in the local language rather than in Latin they just restructured just so many different things that changed people's daily experience of the church it was a very much a way out of way overdue modernization of the Roman Catholic Church yeah and I think we're entering this moment here because we haven't had these changes for about 40 years. Mm. Uh, we, we kind of, we're in a holding pattern. Um, and then we've changed so many things just when the, if within the past two or three years. Months. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, wow. And I think a lot of these changes are overdue. And I've heard a reason behind this that that the brethren knew a lot of these things needed to be changed, but because President Monson wasn't in good enough health to like lead it and 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 be out there on the front of all these changes, they didn't want it to look like they were changing it behind his back. Right, right. And he wasn't out. And so now that President Nelson is here, they're able to just go through the list of all the things that they've been wanting to change for a while. Mm. Things like the two-hour block. Uh, well, I'm not even going to list them all because there's probably over 20, 20 major changes that we've had in the past few years, including now uh, two changes this week. Yeah, two changes And I this think week. what's going on is that these changes like Vatican II are changing people's daily experience of the church. Yeah. Things like the two-hour block ministering um, and now uh, the changes on uh, who can be a witness, um, mm -hmm. all these things. Will, will really change how people access the daily life of the church. And I think all, all these changes, um, yeah, I, th I think they really are trying to improve the daily experience of the church for people. Definitely. So that's why what I'm saying when it's a Vatican II moment okay. in our church. Thanks for clarifying that. I've heard you use that term before, and I wasn't exactly sure what you meant. I Googled it once, but I still didn't get it. Oh, and, okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, thank you for clarifying. And let's go ahead and just uh, highlight that one last story that you talked about, that second change that happened this week, which is the change to women and children witnessing ordinances. Now, this is what I understand. President Nelson said any baptized member may serve as a witness at a baptism of a living person. Any member with a limited use or full temple recommend may be a witness in the temple for a proxy baptism done on behalf of a dead ancestor. And any endowed member with a current temple recommend may serve as a witness to sealing ordinances, living and proxy. So um, basically, these ordinances and who can witness just open to women and children. So women and children can be witnesses of baptisms as long as they've at least been baptized. Women and children can be witnesses in the temple for baptisms as long as you know they have temple mm -hmm. recommends, which you couldn't get in the temple without. And uh, now all endowed women can be witnesses at uh, of ceilings, right? Both living and proxy. So that's mm -hmm. yeah. That's did did I cover all of it? Is that yeah? And um, I suspect this would include men for some reason who don't have the priesthood mm. would also be able to witness. Ah, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I I really want to. Uh, do more research on this and f and figure out what our our sisters in the church have been saying and lift up those voices and we can link to some of those 
And I think that's probably the best way to, to have this conversation going forward is to really listen. Definitely, definitely. Um, and there's going to be women from a number of perspectives, mm-hmm. uh, a number of reactions, positive and negative to these changes. And that's something that we have to keep in mind and and listen to all of the voices. Definitely. I've seen several different kinds of reactions to this just on my social media feed alone. But um, we'll go ahead. As Derek said, we'll put a link to most of these responses in the show notes so that you guys can be able to see them. And also, if you guys happen to know of any any uh, any of these women that have a medium similar to this who are discussing this issue, please let us know because we've asked around in hopes that we could include those voices on the show today. But uh, we simply have not been able to find them mm-hmm. in terms of people who are going to be discussing it this week. But if you guys do know of any like podcasts or any other mediums where this particular issue is going to be discussed by those who are actually affected by it, please let us know. You know how to get a hold of us. Get a hold of us yeah. on Facebook, Messenger, Instagram, Messenger. Tweet at us. Um, send us an email, beyondtheblockpodcast at gmail.com. Our handle on all social media profiles is at BTBLDS. So find us there, too, and uh, we'll be anxious to hear from you all. And we'll be planning to interview people at some point uh, in the near future yeah. to, get th- to get people's voices on our show. Definitely, definitely. So uh, I think that is the last piece of uh, church news uh, that we wanted to cover. We do want to move on to the big story this week. It's probably probably been dominating a lot of your social media feeds, and that is the uh, Amber Geiger verdict and sentencing uh, when it came to the to the murder of uh, Botham Jean. Now, I'll, I'll just put put out there that the verdict to me was definitely shocking. I, I did not expect that particular verdict, even though we had a black judge, black bailiff, and half the jury was black. I wasn't entirely expecting it. Um, like in the last 14 years, there have been hundreds of shootings of unarmed black men by law enforcement officials and a lot of just in the last five years, there's been at least a hundred uh, high-profile shootings that we've that we've seen. And of all of these shootings in the last 14 years, only three convictions were made that actually stood, which is mm. just flabbergasting. Again, this this is just this is just the unarmed black men that have been you know shot and killed by law enforcement officials. And again, that's just three have been convicted of murder and had their convictions stand. The most recent one before this being uh, Matthew Slager or whatever his name was, the guy who killed Walter Scott. That was the most recent one uh, before Amber Geiger. However, what was less shocking was the sentence. Um, This is a crime that puts people in jail for life or gives them the death penalty. Like the minimum sentence for this, I think, was about to be 40 years or 20 years at minimum. I think that's how many Walter Scott's killer got was 20 years. And Emma Geiger got a maximum of 10 years in jail, which means she could be out in three to five on good behavior. So I'm just going to put it out there. This was, this was definitely a slap in the face to me. And I, I will definitely admit to being a little too excited when the, when the verdict came down. When when the news came out that she was going to be convicted, I, I was definitely a little too excited. I even like posted it on my Facebook with the caption justice. I was like, yes, something is finally being done. Accountability is finally like police are finally being held accountable in a way that they weren't in the past. And then, you know, a day or two later, we got the news of the of the actual sentencing and 10 years. I was like, 
never mind. We are th- this. This is not justice because we know if the roles were flipped, if uh, both of Jean had broken into a white woman's house while she was eating ice cream, minding her own business, and shot her dead, he would have at least gotten life in prison. Well, he, he would have been killed on gotten, the scene. Probably been killed on the scene. Yeah, yeah, killed on the scene. And if he's taken alive, death penalty or life in prison. So. You know, there, there have been all kinds of comparisons made, all kinds of news stories brought to our attention where people receive significantly more time for nonviolent crimes. People that have people that are still serving time for, you know, weed possession or selling drugs, people who are uh, doing at least 15 years in prison for nonviolent crimes, let alone murder. Like all kinds of examples have been made. All kinds of other cases have been pointed out. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to go down the list, but I'm just going to say that to most of the black community, this was a slap in the face. But that wasn't probably the biggest part of this story of the sentencing. The um, thing that added a lot of insult to injury was uh, it, it wasn't the gesture. For those of you who don't know, at the uh, what, what, what they call it, a victim statement or something like that. Yeah, the impact statement. Impact statement. Yeah. So uh, Brant John, uh, both of John's brother, he's about 18 years old. He was giving an impact statement, and uh, he asked if it was okay for her to uh, to hug Amber Geiger at the end of his impact statement, and uh, it was a it was a big deal, a grand gesture of forgiveness. Um, and that gesture of forgiveness had been weaponized against the black community to, in essence, silence and condemn their rage. I had seen a lot of people that had nothing to say about the case before come out yep. of the woodwork to say something about Brant John's gesture, his grand gesture of forgiveness. And even Amber Geiger's um, defense attorney had something to say about this. Um, let me see if I can't pull up the quote here. His name, okay, name is Toby Shook. This is what he had to say. He says, I think he showed with his grace and forgiveness how we should heal. And I hope that people who were upset by the verdict will follow his example. Now, there's something very insidious, dangerous, and very Green Book-esque racism in that whole statement. And I'll get that get to that in a second. But something I do want to make clear real quick is that I, I, don't, ha- I don't have a right to criticize Brand John for his choice to forgive uh, Amber Geiger, like, and his choice to give her a hug. Like, my brother didn't die. And further, he's not a judge. I don't get any right to be critical. But I am going to criticize the audacity of folks to tell black folks how to respond to their hurt, to their rage, to their oppression because of Brandt's personal choice and how he was going to offer forgiveness and perhaps even heal himself. For all I know, that in order, in order for Brandt Jean to heal, he needed to forgive and he needed to give her a hug. That is something that he needed to do. And I'm quite certain he didn't intend it to be a political statement even though it's very hard not to conflate the two. So I'm not going to criticize what he did. Uh, again, I'm just going to come for how people are interpreting this gesture and what it means. And this is very reminiscent. I don't know if you remember like how people responded to the Charleston 9, Derek, but um, you know we remember that during the victim impact statements, just one after one, family member and loved one of the people who were killed by the Charleston Knight or people who were killed by Dylan Roof got up and they offered their forgiveness uh, to Dylan Roof. And um, that was, a, that was yeah. a big deal. Everybody had something to say about that as well. But just then as now, many people are pointing out correctly, I might add, the complications with glorifying 
those acts of forgiveness. Particularly that it shouldn't uh, invalidate the value and necessity of black anger, of black rage, and that it shouldn't be taken as representative of what an entire race of people feels or ought to feel. Like this act of forgiveness did not then and it doesn't now absolve the country from dealing with white supremacy or systemic racism. You know what I'm saying? Like anyone who praises, demands, or holds high the value of forgiveness in this moment, what they're actually praising and demanding and holding in high value is the is is absolution like that is what people are yeah. seeking that's what people are after they, they want the forgiveness without the reconciliation that is what people are praising that is what they're demanding that's what they're asking for they want absolution from the racism that infects all of us even though forgiveness cannot reconcile america's past racist sins they want absolution from their silence in the face of all manner of racism both you know great and small and we shouldn't be seeking for that cheap thrill that cheap absolution and an inspiring hug between a victim and a killer meant to teach us how we ought to feel about cops who accidentally or intentionally kill the people they've charged with they're charged with protecting is both immoral and it's and it's dangerous it distracts us from reckoning with the idea that white police officers murder conviction came in large part because of the perfection of both Jean. like he was literally a choir boy like i don't think we would have come to this conviction if Botham John had any kind of criminal record. I think we talked about this last week. But he was so perfect that this conviction came in part because it probably would have been a crime to not convict Amber, Ge- Amber Geiger at all. Like, that's, those were the circumstances of his murder. They, they were so heinous that we had to convict her. So, um, and, and one more thing, to be right, clear. And he was also in the most innocent position you can literally be. Right. Like, if he had been out in, at night on the street, that... They could have found a way to 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 get around justice, but here, like, there's no way you can deny you can. There's no way you can blame his death on him. Right, you right. can't do it. And in his house, in yes. his pajamas, eating ice cream, total defenseless, right. like not armed. Like you really had to find her guilty. So, um, again, anyway, to be clear, like Brand John's forgiveness of Geiger doesn't acquit anybody. Not Geiger, certainly not the system that gave her ten years. Uh, not the judge, and definitely not America. You know what I'm saying? I have, and, and this this is all I'm going to say about um, about the judge and about the bailiff because um, you know I have a, I have a lot to say this, but really what I'm going to whittle it down to is that I have a lot of difficulty imagining you know a, a black person convicted of murder getting hugged and his hair getting pet fixed or braided by agents of the court while he's on trial. What they did, particularly the judge and the bailiff, I think it was abhorrent, it was disrespectful, it was violent, it was unprofessional, it was anti-black, and again, wildly unprofessional. So, yeah, they, 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 they got to repent for that. I don't see any situation where that was okay. I, I see it as the act of compassion for what it was, but it was just totally inappropriate and it sent all the wrong messages to America about how we're going to heal from violence of this nature and how things in the courtroom should be handled. I just wanted to say one thing as a white person, and it might be the wrong thing, but part of what I was thinking is the way white people look at these situations is where would we put ourselves in the situation? And that's where we do the empathy. Like, a lot of white people will look at this and say, you know, I could be her, 
right? They won't look at the, you know, the uh, these other offenses that like are nonviolent, like drug dealing offenses that get twenty years, and th- and they'll never say, oh, I could be, I could accidentally be that person, but they yeah. could say, you know what, I might accidentally. I could see myself making an innocent mistake, which I don't think this was an innocent mistake, but they'll see it that way and they'll think, oh, that could be me. And they sympathize and empathize with her rather than with with both of them, right? Because yeah. I don't, I actually don't go through my life thinking that a cop could burst into my room and kill me, yeah. right? I cannot empathize with that as a white person. That's not going to happen. But it, But white people could you know, accidentally kill someone, whether it's through a car, whether it's through calling the cops on something, they could. So I think that's where this, this, uh, this differential in, in sentencing comes into play where you, where you have someone stealing a jacket and getting life in prison. Uh, I just, you know, I've heard of a number of these cases, uh, people of color, especially. Uh, and then you have situations like this where one woman literally murdered someone else and, has gotten uh even though she was convicted she still gets a lot of extra grace and understanding around it yeah um people still see it as like a tragic mistake that that somehow happened um and and yeah i think that's kind of what's behind the empathy for amber is people saying you know white people say oh i could be her yeah and they never say oh i could be the this other you know, low-level crime uh, defendant that that's gets a whole bunch of years because that would never happen, right? To me, right? And, and that also what would never happen to me is is both of them. So when I even there's a part of me that when I read this story, I actually see myself as more likely to be in Amber's spot than in in both of them. Yeah, and that's just that's not my choice, but that's just the reality of how I've. Uh, my positionality in life and how I've been socialized mm-hmm. to see myself first connecting with, Oh, I wonder what it's like to be Amber and what it's like to make this awful mistake. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's because of that. I believe that within five years, we'll probably Amber's probably going to get a book deal or a documentary, some kind of human interest piece. Like we've, we've seen these stories that have come out with regard to both of Jean's case, they mostly censor, they mostly center Amber Geiger. And it is because of that kind of empathy, that kind of uh, white identification and solidarity with people that, you know, look like them. So I, I don't think this is going to be the last we hear of Amber Geiger. I think there's going to be some kind of piece done on her, whether it's a book or a documentary. And again, that'll probably center her story, what led up to that night and what led to her uh, killing an unarmed black man. I don't think... I feel like it's because of that kind of empathy or because of the tendency of white America to identify with their own. Next time we hear about this case, it is going to be mostly about Amber. It is going to be mostly about her story. Yeah, and I think that's the brilliance of, of the witness of both the New Testament and the Book of Mormon, that when we see something awful happen to someone else, mm-hmm. we should consider it as happening to us. Yeah. And and fight back with the same level of interest and and passion and and dedication yeah right we should mourn with those who mourn we should comfort with those who stand in need of comfort we should um visit the the least of these and 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 support those who are around the margins and like whenever something bad happens to someone else we shouldn't say oops i'm not my brother's keeper we should say look 
what happens to one of us as a human family affects all of us and we should treat it as if it you know love your neighbor as yourself that is the core yep. of of what we're doing here and we Big should time. we should look at we should look at these things and say that that's how we can say well that could have happened to me because it really does happen what happens to one of us happens to all of us we're inseparable mm-hmm. we're entangled mm-hmm. and that's how we can uh can see, pursue justice here definitely and I see that being a, a good segue into the Come Follow Me because I think one of the biggest themes that I'm starting to see in Paul's epistles is that of unity, this mm-hmm. sense of uh, being unified in the body of Christ, this sense of uh, bearing one another's burdens, this sense of uh, feeling for each other the way that Christ felt for us. Like That is a humongous theme of uh, Paul's epistle so far. In fact, I don't think we've come across an epistle so far where Paul has not addressed the topic of unity. Mm-hmm. I think the book of, uh, what was the last one we just read? Galatians. Galatians. I feel like that's, okay, not Galatians, but Ephesians, I feel like is probably the book where that is most pronounced. Oh, yeah. Uh, definitely. I feel like that is probably a big reason that that book, that that epistle was written. But that theme of unity is all throughout um, the Pauline epistle so far, from what I can tell. Yeah, and one thing, of course, to note is that this unity is unity with diversity. He doesn't yes. say you all have to have the same perspective and same opinion. He actually says in, to, the, to the Corinthians and in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, look, some of you can eat uh, vegetables and some of you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. Just whatever you're doing, just be convinced in your own mind and just co- coexist. Yeah. Um, that's also inherent in the one body with many members. There's diversity. We don't yeah. all have to have the same positionality or the same perspective or the same opinions, but we do have to work together in this larger unity. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that. And so I'm going to go in and, and talk about some introductory things for Philippians. One is yes. we have to remember that this was written from prison. Oh, yeah. Paul this was, was written, in jail. And he was potentially facing death. He talks about this in, in Philippians 1 about whether or not he's going to die and whether that would be a good thing. And this gets back to we we are coming from a place of pri- privilege as Christians in America here, mm-hmm. which did not exist in first century Roman Empire because Christianity at this time was was on in the margins. It was in the prisons. It was in the shadows. It had all of the hallmarks of illegitimacy. This was illegitimate. It was not a legalized state religion in the Roman Empire until the 4th century. And so here it is, something that's on the margins. This is where we as queer people can kind of really empathize with what Paul is doing, creating these pockets of Jesus communities all over the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And that gets back to the other detail is that Philippi was a Roman colony. It was was refounded by um, Augustus the Emperor Augustus, uh, and he did this, uh, I think he did it before he became emperor, though. But anyway, he, he refounded Philippi as a Roman colony, and they brought people from Italy over there, people who had Roman citizenship, people who were in the army. There were a lot of Roman nationalistic and patriotic feelings here in Philippi. And so he's writing directly into the heart of that context, and so, so much of what he says about creating this new citizenship and finding our citizenship in heaven, as it says in uh, Philippians 
that is profoundly subversive. He's writing from jail to a people who are threatened with jail because you can tell from from Philippians that they are suffering adversity themselves mm-hmm. and they are deciding whether or not to be afraid of it or not. And he says, basically, don't be afraid. Mm. But then the other thing he brings out in Philippians is this profound sense of joy. I think we have the highest concentration of the word joy in these four chapters than anywhere else in the New Testament. Very uh, interesting. You maybe get a little bit uh, of, of, of joy in John, but but here you have so much of him talking about joy and finding joy in the midst of these things. Mm-hmm. And I want to get back to sort of, like you said, what is Paul's method here? He's not coming in as a systematic theologian with all the answers to everything and then fits everything into that. And in fact, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't fit when he talks. But what he's doing is practical, on-the-ground moral reasoning for daily life as both individuals and in community. And what he does is he centers this practical moral reasoning on the execution and the raising of Jesus. That is, that's all, it's, his moral reasoning is basically completely shaped by the cycle of, of death and resurrection of Jesus and what mm. that does to the community. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about, we mentioned first Corinthians, uh, for, uh, sorry, we mentioned Philippians one nine last week. Yeah. Real um, quick. Um, yeah. and I don't know if this is going to play into what you're about to say, but yeah. I do have a, one more question about the context because something that I did notice in Philippians is that Paul seems to be this, like, as I read, Philippians, this seems to be like the best mood I've ever seen Paul in. And I don't know if uh, that's something that you've noticed, but just the amount of rejoicing, the amount of gratitude, particularly I've noticed at the beginning of this chapter and the things he chooses to talk about. And you said yourself, joy is a subject that he brings about a lot, which is pretty incredible considering that he's writing from jail. Is uh, is there anything that you can ascribe that to or anything? Yeah, probably okay. two things. Okay. One is... Um, when you look at at, at Acts six, well, three things. One is he had a good relationship with the Philippians. This was his first um, Jesus community that he founded in Europe. So this was his first, first mission. Yeah, in Europe. I mean, he did a lot in in Asia Minor and and, and before, but okay, this is just across uh, the water in in Greece in Macedonia, and he uh, and this is this is his his first community, and and he had a great great time there. Uh, the second thing is. This is one of the few letters that he's not writing to solve a major problem, right? Mm. Almost every other community like, oh, man, I got to fix this. But here, there doesn't seem to be a major outbreak of a problem that he has to go in and like, oh, I got to fix this. Mm. And uh, so that's that's kind of on his mind. He's not really fixing things. What he's actually doing is thanking them. The, the like occasion that prompted this letter is probably – Epaphroditus brought a financial gift from Philippi to the prison where, and we don't know actually know which prison this was. Um, it could have been a number of prisons in, throughout the Roman Empire. But Epaphroditus brought a financial gift to support Paul while he was in prison. And he's basically writing this letter as a thank you to them mm. and as a way of uh, commissioning and recommending Timothy and Epaphroditus because he's planning to send them mm. 
to Philippi. And that's why he's writing this. This didn't just come out of nowhere like, oh, I feel like writing a letter. And I think all of these things, he is, has a profoundly intimate understanding of joy and, and gratitude for what's going on here. And this, right. this flows out of this. And he okay. just wants to remind them of the moral reasoning behind, behind all this as gotcha. a Christian community. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah, that was that was. Thanks for that question. That that really brings out a lot of important things. Okay. Cool. So Philipp, Philippians one nine, you said. Yes. Okay. And this is the one where I'm going to read out of the Tom Wayment translation. He says, "And I pray for this that your love will increase more and more in knowledge and in being full of discernment, for you to differentiate what is good and bad, so that you may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ." filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So basically he says, I'm praying that your love will grow in this knowledge and discernment. And the effect of that will be that you can actually tell what are the good options. And I think, like I said, in terms of the LGBT community, you can't just use the word love as an, as an affection. Love is a practice, according mm -hmm. to Paul. This is how you move in the world and what it does for people. And this this practice must be informed by a knowledge of those you claim to love. Mm. And I think that's something that's been missing in our church for so long is people will claim affection for a group of people but then have no idea what their experiences are like, no idea what they need. Yeah. And I love how Paul picks this up in the second chapter when he describes what this love is like. And it ends up being very Christ-shaped. And this is it's just so beautiful. He says in the, this is the famous Christ hymn in Philippians 2. He says, um, well, I, I just feel like I need to read all of it. This is all of Philippians 2? or Well, no, all of Philippians 1, uh, 2, verses 1 through 11. Okay. Therefore, if there's any comfort in Christ, if there is any consolation in love, if there is any sharing in the Spirit, if there is any kindness and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility treat one another as more important than yourselves. Each of you should consider the interests of others and not your own interests. I'm going to pause there and just say, this can't be weaponized against the marginalized. In context, he's actually talking about people of privilege and power not seeking their own interest, but but stripping themselves of that in order to make room for those who are more vulnerable. Mm. And Christ is the best example of that. So in uh, verse 5, and this gets back to the practical things. He's not bringing this Christ him in just because it would be cool. He's bringing it in because of its formational value to the community. Okay. This is his, his version of moral reasoning. And his moral reasoning is not, ooh, I'm an apostle. You've got to do what I say. Mm -hmm. That would violate DNC 121 yeah. about how you actually implement the priesthood. The yeah. moment you claim the priesthood as, as a trump card— You've lost it. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, ironically, if you look at the opening of Philippians, he never, he doesn't even mention that he's an apostle. Yeah. He never claims apostolic authority anywhere in this epistle. In fact, the only time he uses the word apostle is when he's talking about Epaphroditus 
and the King James Version sort of obscures it by translating it as messenger. But that's the only time is he talks about uh, apostolic authority is when, when he's uplifting someone else here in, in Philippians. So anyway, so what he's doing, let's get back to verse 5. Paul says, Have this mind among you as it was in Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not suppose that equality with God was a prize to be seized, but he poured himself out and took the form of a slave, and he was born like human beings, and he was found in human form. He humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him on high and freely bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bend in worship in the heavens, on earth, and among those who dwell beneath the earth. And every tongue will confess the Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. So he bursts out into this song, basically, mm -hmm. which may have been a pre-existing hymn that the Philippians knew already. And Paul's quoting, but this is what, what, what shapes the community, is the moral reasoning based on the example of Christ, mm -hmm. not a handbook, not a manual, mm -hmm. not even a sort of literalistic or fundamentalistic understanding of the previously given commandments, mm -hmm. right? And, and Paul was all about sort of uh, even the abolition of the law, if, if you read it that way in Galatians. But I just love this this example of moral reasoning. But I, I talked about this last week when I talked about my classroom where I would tell kids, explain your work, show your reasoning. I mean, I love the, you know, the Backstreet Boys, tell me why. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what what we should do is we shouldn't just be say, oh, you've got, you've got authority, so I have to do what you say. Yeah. You need to tell me why. Right, right. I ask my kids to explain their reasoning because I'm trying to develop them as as people who have reasoning skills and critical thinking skills and people who can be independent adults one day. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole point of mortality is to become celestial adults and mm -hmm. not outside outsource our moral reasoning. Yeah. Yeah. Right? How how would we rule kingdoms and heavens one day if we have if we don't have if we don't have any moral reasoning right. and we we have everything spoon-fed to us. Right. Right. And I just love this example of what an, how an apostle does the work of an apostle. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, we have people in the church today, I'm not going to name any names, <laughs> that want to shortcut that process and just say, well, I'm an apostle, so you have to do what I say, and, and I just gave this talk, and, and now you got to believe it. I'm like, where is Christ in all that? He yeah. never did that. Paul never did that. Yeah. The only time they really stressed their authority is when they're trying to lift up the marginalized and say, no, you cannot do that to my people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Other than that, it's it's totally not only totally valid, but we should have this attitude of tell me why. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the, that's the attitude that brought about the restoration. Like, mm -hmm. Joseph had a question. Yeah. I think that's so beautiful. Um, and wasn't satisfied with the level of, of knowledge that he currently had. And um, and so whenever we hear, and that's, that's, I suppose, a good intro to conference time because mm -hmm. I have no idea what our general authorities are going to say. Yeah. <laughs> they could come out with something really, really not helpful for LGBT people. Yeah. 
and whatever they say, we have to actually take that and 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 check that against DNC 121. Are they showing us the work? Mm-hmm. Are they saying, look, this is where I developed my love with knowledge and insight about the population that I'm trying to address. Mm-hmm. Did they do that? Did they claim authority just based on their calling? Or did they actually demonstrate moral reasoning mm-hmm. with a community, not to a community, but with a community collaboratively constructing the way we live together so that we can all be united in one mind and one spirit and right. one love? Right. So that's kind of, I just love what Paul's doing there. Mm. And so he, he talks about this. Christ is the first example of this. But then there are three more examples. One is Timothy in chapter 2, and then also Epaphroditus in chapter 2. And Paul talks about how they made some significant self-sacrificial uh, actions in order to benefit other people. And then Paul uses his own example in Philippians chapter 3. And he even appeals to this controversy, which we know so well from Galatians and Acts, about the Gentiles. And he said, I put my own privilege on the line for these Gentiles. Wow. That's the example. That's an apostle right there. And I just love what he does. And he talks about... Um, let's, let's go back to this. I didn't even pull out the shape of this uh, Christ-like example. He, Christ had all the privilege and power in the world. He was God yeah, and stripped himself of that, bec- taking on the form of a, of a slave uh, in humility, even submitting himself to death. And he did that not to exalt himself, but to exalt other people. And yeah. as a result of that, he got exalted. Yeah. That and harkens I, back to actually what we uh, read in Corinthians not too long ago. Yeah. Um, I don't remember it exactly verbatim, but he talked about how, um, oh gosh, uh, what was it? What was it? When he, when he talked about Christ literally embracing poverty, embracing being poor yeah. in order to make us rich, that was, the, that was the words he used. He said, yeah. Christ embraced poverty so that we could become rich. And I found like that spoke a lot to me because, you know, I think a lot about the privilege and uh, oppressed dynamics and being one possessing wealth and one not possessing wealth, but that whole imagery of one person shirking their own wealth so that others might have it as well, embracing poverty in the process so that others might have wealth was an extremely great visual yeah. aid for me. Yeah, that's that's in Second Corinthians 8, and, and, yes. we, and we talked about that it's so beautifully. I just love how how this this is who we are as members of i love the fact that jesus christ is the middle name of our church mm-hmm. we are the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints the two entities in that title are jesus and us mm-hmm. and there's no one between jesus and us and the leaders of the church that's just us right that's mm-hmm. just us members of us who are in a particular calling for a particular time like everyone else and I think, and they think that's what what Paul's getting at in Philippians three. He brags and boasts about all of the all of his privilege. Um, temporarily, he says, "Look, I've I have confidence in the flesh. I was circumcised on the eighth day, a tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, according to the Torah. I was a Pharisee. I was blameless, according to righteousness that comes through the law." Then he says, "All of these things." 
are worth nothing to me. All of these things that the world would boast in, all of this power and privilege, he gave that up mm. in order to serve others um, like Christ did. He says in verse 8, But more than that, I now count everything as loss because of the superior value of knowing Jesus, Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He's writing this from prison, not from the prison, cheap seats. Yeah. He said, I regard them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him while not having my own righteousness from the law, but that which comes through the faith of Christ, the righteousness from God that relies on faith. Strong language. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing in his sufferings and to be like him in his death, if somehow I might achieve the resurrection from the dead. Let's talk about what Paul would say to the church today. Yes. Like all these people who are boasting like, oh, I've got my Eagle Scout. Oh, I went to BYU. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, oh I, you probably did those things, right? <laughs> yeah, I was an Eagle Scout. And I served I a mission. I did go to BYU. I did serve a mission. <laughs> and, well, all those things that I haven't done, but right? That's not the point. That's not the point. But, but his point is, you know, all that stuff, that doesn't count for anything. Right. What counts is, have you abandoned that privilege and given up the exercise of that privilege in order to serve those who are marginalized? Boom. That is all you need to do. Yeah. That's really all Christ did mm-hmm. on a big scale. We're all the marginalized as humans, you mm-hmm. know, marginalized by sin and death. Um, oppressed by Satan, and he took upon our form. He gave up his status in order to lift everyone up. Yep. And that's really what we are are called to do is is um, infuse the world with that type of love mm-hmm. and community Jesus communities mm-hmm. that are organized around that principle. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, let's get into to chapter four. I know you had some thoughts about chapter four, so I'd like to hear from you. Yeah, definitely. So uh, from Philippians four one through thirteen, there is there's a lot in this uh, a lot in this section. But I want to preface this by actually some words from President Nelson that he gave uh, a few years ago, and this is actually quoted in the Come Follow Me manual. Uh, this is how they begin uh, this section of of. Uh, of the manual actually and this is the quote here from president nelson when the focus of our lives is on jesus christ and his gospel we can feel joy there's that word again we can feel joy regardless of what is happening or not happening in our lives joy comes from and because of him and i think it should also be named that uh, since we're talking about cheap seats president nelson is also not really speaking from the cheap seats this is somebody who has known a great amount of grief and known loss but and the fact that he can say this the fact that he can say that we can find joy regardless of what is happening to us uh, means a lot to me personally because i know that president nelson is not saying that lightly that is a very like it's a big deal so anyway i feel like this particular section of scripture especially verse 13 is an overquoted yet underrated verse in scripture we say it all the time yet fail to fully grasp the gravity of it. I'll just go ahead and read it real quick. I'm referring specifically to Philippians 4.13. If you're a fan of UFC or anything like that, John Jones has this tattooed on his chest, and this is what he is saying. 
I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. That's how he like caps off this whole section, which is a very profound statement in the context of, again, what he's experiencing and what he is yet going to experience. In fact, the first thing I thought of when I realized the context of this particular epistle was that he is saying this in the midst of being in jail. He's saying this almost as if, in fact, I think he actually highlights this in a Philippians 1. He actually kind of implies that his imprisonment is going to further the work of the gospel. Yep. Which is just like, what? How? Like, I don't... <laughs> well, two things. One is it gives him access because then, yeah. like, the whole Roman guard actually has to listen to him and, and deal with him. <laughs> two, what it does is it is a, it's a wake-up call. If you look at this and you're like, someone's willing to go to jail for this? Yep, yep. There must be serious commitment and motivation. There must be something behind that because no one would would go to jail for something that you know unless they were serious about it and this wasn't he wasn't like of any other crime other than preaching jesus in a way that's inconvenient to the rest of the world particularly giving access to people who aren't supposed to have it like remember last week we talked about the middle partition and how paul was in essence put into prison because he was letting gentiles go past that point in the temple they weren't supposed to go and then then the third piece of it is his reaction yeah in, yeah. in prison like Big if time. he's in having joy in prison people are gonna look at it like like there must be something there that i don't have yes. that i need in my life let me get a piece of that i want and it. i think he's like wow i i can be content in all things because look god's gonna work this around to to bring around so many people to christ big time big time now that piece of the prison is just that's just one piece of it you know this is the gravity of the situation paul is in prison and while he's in there, he's acknowledging the greatness of his, you know, his first spiritual children, like these people in uh, Philippi. He's giving gratitude. He's expressing love. And he's looking to Christ. And this is the declaration he gives us. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. This isn't an epiphany, but, Paul, but something that Paul seems to demonstrate throughout his entire mission, throughout the, all of the Pauline epistles. Um, and we catch glimpses of it throughout the Pauline epistles, like his, his successes when he recounts his conversion mm-hmm. and uh, when he recounts the Savior's own life. In the book of Hebrews, he literally says, uh, Hebrews 12, two, I, okay, I wrote down the quote here. Hebrews 12, 2, he literally tells us that Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. There's that word again, that word joy. He, using Christ, Paul tells us the key to enduring all manner of tribulation is finding Christ. And that Christ's strength on the cross was the joy that he would yet experience. Like that is profound. That is extremely profound. And something that I'm hesitate that I hesitate a little bit to to, you know, weaponize against people who are going through legitimately hard times. But the fact that we know that Christ, while on the cross, had the joy to look forward to of what he would yet experience as the source of strength that allowed him to endure the cross is very profound and I think gives President Nelson's words more powerful yeah. when he says that literally in any situation that you experience or what, regardless of what is happening or what is not happening, you can experience the peace, the comfort, the strength, the joy that comes from Christ. Like that is incredibly profound. So Paul, again, tells us the key that the key to enduring all manner of tribulation and finding Christ is focusing on the joy of eternal life made possible through the atonement of Christ. Now that particular thought, none of this was actually on my mind this week 
as I hadn't uh, as I hadn't read these uh, verses yet. But I did have an experience to uh, I had an opportunity to give a priesthood blessing to to someone whose mother had been in an accident and that put her in the ICU. And uh, something that happens to me when I give blessings to strangers is I usually feel like I'm given more inspiration than usual. And oftentimes when I'm given when I'm giving blessings, it's often to strangers, uh, people that I barely know through ministering or people through that channel that I people who I meet through that channel. And that's what this blessing that I gave was. But last night I received a lot less inspiration than I normally do. My blessing that I gave was uh, actually very short, but I also feel like I received all the inspiration I needed. And that inspiration, the counsel that I gave was very much in this vein of Philippians one through 13, very much in this vein of Hebrews 12 verse two. The primary counsel I felt inspired to give was basically this passage that through Christ, you will find peace, you will find joy, you will find comfort, you will find strength, you will find and receive counsel, etc. Like that was basically the crux of the blessing, the crux of the counsel that I felt impressed to give during this blessing. And it was only when I got to read these verses, it was only when I got to see President Nelson's talk that I understood the power of those words. You really can find joy. You really can find strength. And all of these situations, when you have the joy that lays before you through the atonement of Christ to look forward to, this is the same joy that Christ, that it helped Christ endure on the cross. And it's the same joy. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to link this to uh, black liberation theology briefly that allows uh, black folks to, to find joy, even in the midst of the tribulation mm-hmm. where Christ had the cross. Black people have the lynching tree, if you will. I feel like no one knows this particular truth of finding joy in tribulation than people that are on marginalized communities, people who are dispossessed or otherwise dehumanized, disrespected and otherized in any way, which is uh, why I feel that so many members of the church who are marginalized have so much spiritual strength. And it makes a lot of sense to me of the black theology of liberation. It makes sense of a bit of a foolish gaffe that Elder Stevenson made while he was in yeah. uh, I don't remember if it was Tanzania or if it was Uganda, but he said something along the lines of he feels like uh, African saints are given, if you will, bonus spirituality. Yeah, an extra spiritual gene. Yes, an extra spiritual gene was the word he used. But uh, something that we fail to acknowledge many times is that there is probably, there is likely a greater spiritual resiliency that these people have as a result of the oppression they've been subjected to. You know, they've had their land pillaged. They've had their riches stolen. They've been otherized by this uh, globalized system mm-hmm. of, of racism, of colorism. Like, they've been subjected to that, and they needed a source. They needed a source of spiritual empowerment, and they found that through Christ. Yeah, they've, li- they've been shoved up against Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they found that. So, um... Where, where I want to tie this back to black theology and why this makes so much more sense to me and why I believe it to be synonymous with Christian theology is because that Jesus' righteousness, the joy set before him, and his mission is inseparable from the plight of the dispossessed, the dehumanized, and the destitute. I don't believe it to be coincidence that the peace that passeth all understanding, again, this is in reference to uh, Philippians, I think this is 4 verse 7, the peace that passeth all understanding, the same peace that allowed Jesus to endure the cross is the same peace that allows black folk to endure the lynching tree. It is a fruit of the gospel of and the... It is a fruit of the atonement of Jesus Christ. So, um, you know, I was actually going to tie this back to uh, 
what you've already highlighted in uh, Corinthians and what you've highlighted in uh, previous Philippians chapter, but I don't think I really need to do that anymore. And I think uh, this is a good way to put a button on this section. Yeah. I mean, that is so profound. And I like how Paul's reasoning, as I said, flows from the Christ, the cruciform example of Christ. It doesn't come out of like, oh, you've got this manually that you got to be. It's like, how do you apply in a new situation, in a new context, on, on the fly, this this daily moral reasoning? And I think that's something that we've lost in the church is this sort yeah. of responsiveness to. but And we've got that in our doctrine. Like it we always the have yeah. the spirit with us. We always have the right to personal revelation. Yeah. We always have these things, right? Yeah. I think there's just this cultural objection that that doesn't leave room for the spirit and doesn't leave room for what some people might be afraid of as innovation or adaptation but it's actually there in our sources i want to quote from um elizabeth schusler friarenza's uh in memory of her a feminist theological reconstruction of christian origins uh because i wanted to uh to go back to in the beginning of of chapter four we've got this sort some sort of conflict between Euodia and Syntyche, uh, and this wasn't enough of a conflict to prompt the whole letter. This is just while he's doing his concluding greetings, he's going to mention this. Okay. Um, but this, so he says, I encourage Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, faithful companion, help them, for they have struggled alongside me and Clement and my other fellow workers in the ministry of the gospel, whose names are written in the book of life. This is Philippians 4, verses 2 okay. and 3. So he calls them fellow workers. He said that they contended alongside him. Mm-hmm. He really names them as equals, these two women in, in Philippi. And the implication of this, we don't want to, like, gender their conflict and say, well, they were, you know, because if there were two men who had a conflict, we wouldn't attribute that to their gender. So we shouldn't do the same thing here and think, oh, these are just two women squabbling or something. Yeah, yeah. But what's interesting about that is they must have been prominent enough in the community and their leadership was valuable enough that he had to address this, even in the midst of an otherwise positive letter. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he does say, beware of the those who mutilate the flesh in Philippians 3. That would be his other sort of warning. Yeah. But... But yeah, I mean, the fact that these two women are prominent enough in their leadership that some dispute between them affects the health of the community means that there's a place for women's leadership in Paul. And I and here's where I'm going to quote. Um, we call her ESF, Elizabeth Schisler Fiorenza. She says on page 169, the Pauline letters mention women as Paul's co-workers, mm-hmm. but these women were not the helpers of Paul or his assistants. Only five of Paul's co-workers, all of whom are male, Erastus, Mark, Timothy, Titus, and Tychicus, quote, stand in explicit subordination to Paul, serving him or being subject to his instructions. The genuine Pauline letters apply missionary titles and such characterizations as co-worker, Prisca, brother and sister, Aphia, Diaconus, which is deacon or servant, yeah. Phoebe, and apostle, Junia, and that's in Romans 16, to women also. Uh, and I just love how she points this out is Paul 
does sometimes have uh, men who he explicitly says are subordinate to him and need to follow his instructions, right? Mm-hmm. But he never says that about women. He never makes women leaders subordinate to him. He always makes them co-equal with him mm. whenever he mentions women leaders in the church. And I think that's that's important to point out because a lot of yeah. people— and rightly so, are a little bit afraid of Paul. They find the anti-gay parts and they find the anti-women parts. Yeah. And that's that's their primary connection to Paul. And while I'm not excusing or erasing some of the challenging parts in Paul, yeah. we have to look at, at how Paul does his moral reasoning in community and see that as sort of the, the touch point and connection. Um, rather than him, because he didn't want to be the final word on everything. Like, if he had the final word, he wouldn't have had to write some of his letters twice to the same community. Right. He's always responsive to the needs of the community and and trying to figure out, like, how does this fit into this dynamic crucible of, of what's going on in the real world? Right. And I just love how he does this in Philippians. Um, just responding to this this uh this contingent between these two women in the church and i think wow that's actually beautiful and it's a way of uplifting the role of women leaders in the church Mm. and then i love how he concludes uh goes on to say rejoice in the lord always and again i say rejoice that your kindness be known to everyone the lord is near do not worry about anything but in all things let your requests be known to god by means of prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and i think queer people obviously have a lot of petitions mm. in the church. Like we have requests and we're letting them uh, be made known to God. And then it says in verse seven, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts, hearts and thoughts in Christ Jesus. Yeah. I just, yeah, it's, I, I just, um, I, I hate to say I'm in love with Paul, but, but there's something precious about Paul's writings that could transform this church if we dug deeper into them and and learned from them. Big time. Big not time. just copying and pasting them, because obviously we have Latter-day Prophets, uh, but there's stuff we can learn Yeah. about how he cherishes the Philippians, how his companionship with Timothy and Epaphroditus changed the way things worked out, how he found meaning. And that, that's actually really profound is the reason that he was able to be content with all of his suffering is is partly because he had a narrative that made sense of it. Yeah. Like, even if he died, he would say, well, that's just going to further the gospel. Mm-hmm. Whether he suffered, oh, that's going to further the, the gospel. Basically, anything you did to him would further the gospel, and the more you persecuted him, the more he could actually be a martyr and witness, which is what the word martyr means, mm-hmm. is, is, is a witness that people could... Uh, trust a proven witness someone who's willing to suffer and die for something that's what paul wanted to do and i think we should be willing to suffer as well for doing what's right there's going to be times where those of us who are allies in the church are going to have to make a choice between doing what's right and doing what will be convenient for our privilege yeah and paul would say there's no choice you've got to abandon and take a risk uh, of losing some of your privilege some of your status to support those who are weaker, more marginalized. Mm. And I just want to point out that in the in the example, or at least the most recent example of Paul doing this that we have seen, particularly that conflict in Antioch, Paul didn't lose his apostleship when he confronted the chief apostle of the church. 
the church actually continued to flourish. Uh, the church didn't stop growing, and Paul didn't stop being an apostle, even though he publicly and brazenly disagreed with an apostle, like the chief apostle, even yeah. calling them a hypocrite. So I'm just pointing that out to say, we don't stand to lose a lot. Now, granted, we have seen some high-profile uh, mm. excommunications in our day and age for people who dared say anything ought of what the brethren are teaching or what they're doing or whatever. But even that, there's a lesson to be gained from that. We don't stand to lose anything substantial, even through excommunication, so long as it's in the service of Christ, so long as it is in the effort of um, living Christ. You know what I'm saying? Right. What I really liked particularly about the story of uh, of Sister Levina was that when, um, even though she was excommunicated, she never stopped going to church. She never stopped believing. She still had a testimony and she still exercised that testimony. Like the fact that she's not technically a part of the church doesn't actually mean anything for her relationship with Christ. And I think all of us need to take a cue from that, both Levina's example and Paul's example, because yeah. what they're telling us is that in service of Christ, if it comes down to cr- serving Christ or serving man, serving Christ is always going to be the better road to go. Yeah. And it's always yeah. going to be the more rewarding wo- uh, road to go dis- in spite of the consequences. Right. And that gets back to the Christ-shaped example. Yeah. Right? He was willing to, to, he was willing to die. He was willing to lose his standing in the institutional world mm-hmm. um, and, and be rejected for what he was teaching. Uh, and, and that gets back to general conference. We as Latter-day Saints, um, while we respect and sustain our leaders, we're not really in the habit of saying uh, that they're wrong, right? Right. As we haven't they, been in yeah. that habit for a while. And I think it should be totally okay if someone says something at general conference that's wrong to say, you know what? That was wrong. Right. Prophets and apostles have the agency to be wrong. They're, yeah. they're not perfect. Right. Uh, there's this cultural thing that that sort of has the, puts this halo around something that's said over the pulpit at general conference, but look at all that stuff that Brigham Young said o- at yep. general conference that no yep. one, <laughs> him, Marky e. Peterson, George Q. Cannon, Bruce R. McConkie, they all said questionable yeah, stuff. Yeah, every, over the every, pulpit. Now, now, if I were look, I'm if I were in general authority, I would say stuff that's wrong too. Let me just be the first person to say that. Okay, I yeah. make mistakes. If I were an apostle, there's going to be stuff that I said that 50 years later people can say, well, Elder Knox, well, he was just a product of his time. Is that right? Mm-hmm. No. I mean, <laughs> I am, I am, no, no one of us is immune. And that's why we do this in community. Yeah. And I love, and let's go back to this because people think that just because you're a prophet, somehow you're a, that means you're a you're a nice person and you're always in tune with Christ's example and you're never a jerk or a mean person. That's not true. We talked about the example of Jonah who yep. wanted the Ninevites to fry yep. because he didn't want them to have the blessings of the gospel that he had. And mm-hmm. he didn't want them to, to repent. And and he was a true prophet. Let's look at Elijah in first uh first Kings eighteen, where he taunted and teased the, the the priests of Baal and he like laughed at them and said ha ha your God isn't even listening to you and and that's not I mean that's a true prophet and he mm-hmm. not only teased them but he killed them yep, after the whole thing was done he's like slaughtered them he's a prophet and Elisha <laughs> in Second Kings chapter two 
uh, people made fun of Elisha for being bald, and he cursed the ch- the kids and sent a, a whole bunch of them, a bunch of bears. What the heck? That's you can be a true prophet of the Lord and be a jerk. Mm. Let's just let's put that as one of our things. You can be a true prophet of the Lord and be a jerk. Mm. There's nothing preventing you from exercising your agency and being a jerk. Right. Right. Uh, same with me. There's nothing preventing me from being a jerk either. Yep. Right. And we have to have some humility. This goes back to what Paul's talking about. We need to all make room for one another. Yep. And have humility. Yep. And not boast in our standing and our authority and our, but actually just serve one another as Christ served. Even even taking a hit on some of our power and privilege in abandoning them that the exercise of it in order to serve those who need it. Yeah. And that's kind of where I want to end what I want to say about Philippians. Great. that's a, that, I feel like that's a great place to end as well. And I'm really gr- glad uh, that you brought that up, Derek. I really feel like that last part in particular, giving people the grace to be human is a big part of uh, Christianity and that we should extend that to everybody, especially our leaders, because mm-hmm. like you said, they're not perfect. And to assume that everything they do is perfect is to rob them of their agency, to say that they you know, grew up in any kind of vacuum where they weren't permitted to have their own biases or their own prejudices or their own uh, demons or whatever, that's like, that's just, that's not allowing them to be human and it's not healthy. Right. So I really appreciate the fact that you brought that up. But anyway, if that's all we want to say about Philippians, then this would be a good time for us to go to the prayer roll. And I'm going to keep this part short because I don't have a lot to say um, I, as I've already, I've already talked about my biggest grievance with, uh, with the judge over the Amber Geiger case, both Mijan case. So I'm just going to reserve this particular section for, I, I don't know where we're going to call them. Uh, what's their official name? Freaking the people in charge of the people in charge of international gymnastics. So I'm just going to call them the international gymnastics officials. So, um, International Gymnastics Federation. That's their name. This is what they did this week. They are, in essence, penalizing Simone Biles for having skills that other gymnasts can't pull off. And how they're doing this is they're making certain moves that only Simone Biles can do worth less in competition. So uh, Simone announced that she was going to like introduce a couple of new elements in her routine uh, the one where you stand on the bar, the balance beam, and the floor routine. And they are marking down two of those moves that only Simone Biles has done and can do to, I, to, I suppose, discourage other gymnasts from doing those things. Which is not really fair. Yes, Simone is in a league of her own, but that doesn't mean you can't credit her for what she's doing and what only she is capable of doing Um, and you know she made very clear how she felt about it in this tweet where she simply says ha 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 bs i'm paraphrasing but that's basically the tweet so i had to have a look at these judges and um you know just just google a picture of the international gymnastics Uh federation judges and you'll see exactly what i see you'll see a bunch of people none of whom look like simone biles making a decision to penalize her for being the greatest in her sport. She is the reigning world and Olympic champion, and we are simply going to make her moves worthless so we don't hurt other people, which is extremely problematic, extremely offensive, especially when you consider that Simone is already very careful 
and what moves she does. It took her about, it took her over a year just to make the decision to perform that move that is now called the Biles on her floor routine. So I don't know, man, just, I feel like we've seen this a lot, particularly with black women. We saw this with Serena Williams. We see this with Simone Biles. Now people just finding any reason to be critical or any way to hold this woman back. In fact, something that Serena said that I really liked was that she was just going to be good. So good that people couldn't say no to her. And even in the midst of that, Simone Biles is doing so well that people are in essence changing the rules so that she can't be as great as she is, which, you know, alone in a vacuum doesn't seem like a big deal. But when you look at just the history of our nation, just otherwise dispossessing and trying to just hold black women back or keep black women out of sports or black people in general out of elite spaces this makes perfect sense. Like, I'm not shocked by this at all, but I'm just severely disappointed. In an organization that just got off the heels of um, solving and prosecuting a huge scandal when it comes to uh, the safety of their gymnasts, particularly the physical and sexual safety of their gymnasts, I would have expected a lot better of them than to simply start penalizing someone who's the greatest in her sport simply because she can do things that the rest of the gymnasts can't. So... People are already acknowledging this is ridiculous, but there's no retraction. This is still a very new story. It's only about a day old, but uh, I'm hoping and praying that the International Gymnastics Federation repents of this gross injustice and just lets Simone Biles be great. Don't make what other people can't do her problem. Let her be great. LaFon. Yeah. I don't have really any specific incident for a prayer role but i just want to pray for a lot of the people in our church who are close to being lgbt allies but held back by some other excuse like they they need to retain their privilege or they need to mm-hmm. you know um retain some comfort with something that they grew up with and it especially has to do with the instinct of people to defend what some church leader said somewhere, you know, this always happens. People will come out with something, um, and then other people, members of the church, will rush to defend the apostles, um, or the or the 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 general authorities or the the leader who said something. I'm like, what's going? Let's go. What's going on here? I mean, the people who who have the most visibility in this church. They don't need any defense. They've they've got a near monopoly on the conversation here, uh, the public access to to being heard. Right? If if the President Nelson says something, everyone's going to hear it. If I say something, well, my listeners will hear it. Right? Our listeners will hear it. But but I don't have any uh, automatic sort of microphone that that gets to millions of people overnight. Yeah, and so, so why why the rush? I love what what Augustine said. Some I think it was Augustine said something about how the truth is like a lion. You don't need to defend it. You just need to unleash it, and it'll defend itself. Mm. Right. And I think time and the spirit have a way of sifting out what our church leaders say. Mm-hmm. Some of the, some of those things are beautiful and profound, and and will stand the test of time. And we should rearrange our life 
to conform to those things. And then there's others that if we try to conform to them, we will have damaged a part of our soul and a part of the fabric of our community. Mm. And so I just want to lift up people who, who will, whose first instinct is to, to make sense of and say why, why what this leader said was okay. And I'm like, you don't have to do that. You can just sit with people in silence, sit with people in their pain, kind of like what Job's friends did at the beginning. They just sat with him in ashes for seven days and then they started talking like they were experts. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That You don't want to do that. That's friend-splaining. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just made up a new word. Good job. Yeah. They were friend-splaining to him, like his own pain and, mm-hmm. and trying to make sense of it and rather than just sitting with him. And if you can't, if you can't say the right thing and figure out like what is the what a what a good ally or accomplice will do in this situation, it's better to just sit with the silence and sit with the pain and say, "Look," and be present with someone and say, "Look, yeah, I'm here," mm-hmm. rather than trying to invalidate someone's pain or excuse the the person who 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 committed the act that caused the pain. Just figure out what Christ would do, right? He, he sacrificed everything. Yeah. We can sacrifice a little comfort and a little bit of our authority and a little bit of our respect in the community in order to help those who are women, people of color, people with disabilities, um, LGBTQ people, all the people that traditionally don't, uh, aren't seen to have a, a good place in this church. We actually have a place. People just need to notice it. And, yeah. and unleash it, right? Yeah. And it'll be there. So that's kind of my prayer role. I hope that we as a people can can really culturally get around our sort of addiction to having e- easy, instant answers from our leaders. Dope. Thank you for sharing. Do you have a uh, creating Christ-like change for this week? I do. I just want to talk about the power of stories. And we got okay. into this a little bit when we, we talked about how Paul's narrative of the the awful crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth and then his resurrection from the dead shaped everything about Paul's moral reasoning. I think the power of stories is, is one of the most powerful things that marginalized people have because when we try to argue about doctrine, when we try to about argue about scriptures, when we try to like, you know, give our little proof text, they're going to come back with something on the other side. They're going to have their logical whatever's that they're claiming but when you tell someone a story like this happened to me and it hurt, they can't really refute that. Yeah. Right. Cause you're not arguing about, well, what does the proclamation on the family mean? And you're not parsing all the words of the, of Genesis one and two. And you're not, if you say, look, this happened to me. Like I was, this didn't happen to me, but it happened to someone I know. He was a, a young deacon and he came out as gay to his ward and his family supported him, but people refused to take the sacrament out of his hand because he was gay. Hmm. And I mean, like, and he was like 14. He hadn't like committed the sin of gay sex yet. Right. He hadn't done anything other than acknowledge who he was and, and what and what context he was coming from. And people just thought that was so awful and so he could say, look, this is what happened to me. Um, I should say one time back when I was passing the sacrament very early in my uh, time in the church, 
there was a sister missionary sitting in, in the pew and I, I passed her the bread and she didn't take it and she passed it to the next person. And I had heard this story about this other guy and I thought to myself, what's going on here? Why did she not take the bread? And I, I realized it couldn't be because she hated my orientation because she had never once you know, done anything to give me the indication that she didn't, uh, wasn't comfortable with me or didn't trust me or something like that. Then I think, well, it couldn't be that she had some other private center of her own because she's a good missionary and she never would do anything. You know, she, I knew her. Right. And I thought to myself, you know what? The first two answers that she had a problem with me or she had her own private sin, neither of those answers made any sense. And I thought to myself, there must be some third answer that explains this that I just don't know. Mm-hmm. And I figured it out later when the gluten-free bread came by and she took uh, the gluten-free bread. I'm like, oh, that's it, right? So I'm so glad that I withheld judgment, uh, both of myself and her, for more information. And I think that's a good lesson for us in the church. Like there's there's questions that we don't know the answer to, but rather than coming to an, the first easy thing we think of in defending our leaders or in defending the church or whatever, we should just say, hey, you know what? There might be another answer that that we don't have yet, and uh, it, but oh, let's get back to my creating Christ-like change. Is telling a story, and look, I told a story, and it had an impact. I think when we tell a personal story, people can't really argue with. It's one of the most ways of, and that's how how Jesus did his ministry. He told parables. He told stories. That's how Paul did his ministry. He told stories about Christ. He told stories about himself. Narrative has the cha- has the power to change the world, and I think that's one of the most important tools that we have locally. Like we can just say what happened to us, rather than trying to argue about whether or not we're going to be gay in the next life. You can't really win that argument in the moment. You know, there's 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 no like reality check that will you can go to and say, look, I'm right, because uh, we're not there yet. We'll we'll know on the day of the resurrection, right? If uh, you know, if we wake up and I'm straight, well then we'll know, <laughs> right? But that's that's impossible, of course. Yeah. I wouldn't be me. What would happen is I would be deleted, and someone else would take my place. It wouldn't. It would not be me because everything, just like Paul's life was formed by the cross, my life was formed by my cross. Like there, you can't. Take that away from me and still be have me be me. Telling our stories, telling our story, that that's powerful. And I think we should all tell our stories about what you saw, what you heard. And that's what Joseph Smith did with mm-hmm. the first vision. He, he said, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is how I felt. What do we say to that, right? It, yeah. it only puts us in a moment of decision. Do we... Do we take on the challenge or do we ignore it? We can't really argue with his his uh, own testimony. It's a matter of does it change us or not? That's what happens. Right. And that's our power of, of how we can create Christ-like change through the power of our own stories. Telling the stories. Got it. Thank you very much for sharing that, Derek. Well, conference is beginning in about 15 minutes for us. So we are going to go ahead, get our Twitter account ready. And uh, hopefully be talking to you guys soon via Twitter and uh, discussing the happenings of conference. Uh, follow us at BTVLDS on Twitter. You, all can all, you can also find us on Instagram with that same handle. Please talk to us. We'll be using the hashtag LDSConf. 
and uh, we'll be talking to you guys on social media soon and we'll likely be doing a conference recap during next week's episode so we will talk to you guys next week and talk to you guys this weekend for conference yeah later bye everyone